Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm your host, Greg B., joined as always by Jacob. Hello. And today, we're going to be reviewing Dragon Brew. We've talked about it before, we've had the creator on, and we're finally getting around to reviewing it. But first, what have we been playing? Actually, a lot since uh, it's been a while since we've actually talked about what we've been playing. Exactly. This is what we should do. We should just wait longer so that we stockpile more stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. So, first off, something that we played together. We played it recently with our friend Leslie, who mm-hmm. is also on the podcast quite often. Orleans. Or yeah. Orleans. Or Orleans. Or, yeah, sorry. However, you want to say that, French people. Yeah, we apologize <laughs> to any of our French listeners or even Cajun or Creole listeners. Uh, Anyone who knows French, I'm sorry. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, Orleans is a really interesting game, and I'm not entirely certain how to describe it apart from worker placement, but like, like really. Really worker placement. Like you're literally taking your different workers who have different types. So you have your builders, you have your monks, you have your farmers, you have your sailors and all these kinds of things. And you're placing them on a board to do stuff. Right. And 80% of the stuff that you're doing is getting more workers. So basically, yes. to, to kind of help you understand what we're talking about, everybody has a bag, an yes. opaque bag, inside which are workers represented by different colors of little wooden people. And you shake up the bag and you draw out a number of workers at the beginning of every turn. And those are who you'll have to assign to your various actions. Each action has certain required colors of worker. So moving around the map frequently requires knights who are red, presumably yeah. to act as like an armed escort. Moving around the water requires blue sailors. Doing anything that's going to get you knowledge requires scholars, gray. It's similar to Roll for the Galaxy in certain ways, where yep. you're sort of building not a deck, but a bag full of guys. And those guys are going to govern, generally speaking, what types of actions you can perform. So you can tailor your bag if you want to say, okay, I'm going for a carpenter heavy bag, or I want to go for, you know, I want to move around the map and drop a bunch of uh, guild halls. Let's go knights. Yeah. And, and it's, it's very interesting in that. And like, you have to almost count how many of each one you have and know that what your proportions are and what chances are you're going to get these kinds of guys mm-hmm. from the bag. At which point you will inevitably not get a single one of those guys <laughs> from the bag. It's true. But overall, I think it was a really interesting game. Uh, our friend said it was one of his favorites. I think we both really enjoyed a lot of the core mechanics and wanted to, to get back to it, honestly. Uh, yeah, for I'd sure. play it again in a heartbeat. Oh, 100%. I, I really did enjoy the game, and I think that this was one of those games that as soon as we were done, I was just like, all right, so can we play again? Right, yeah, because well, cause there's so many different strategies, right? You yeah. want to try them all, and you want to say, okay, that one worked okay for me. Mm-hmm. What if maybe I focused on this instead? And so I think from that perspective, the game has a lot going for it, uh, and I imagine we'll probably be reviewing it somewhere down the line. That and also I was very salty. Greg beat me into last place by one point. It's it's true. One one whole point. Yep. But yeah, so we played that and then we actually played another game for the first time with the same people on a different day. Yes. But we played Path of Light and Shadow, which mm-hmm. is one it's the only game that I have ever personally kickstarted. Yep. And I'm a little bit embarrassed because we didn't play my copy. Uh, we played <laughs> our friend's copy, but I mean basically the same thing. And I loved it. I know some people were saying that it wasn't their favorite game. Some people were saying that it's, you know, got got some pretty 
salient flaws, but I think it has everything that I want, which is moderate amounts of territory control, enough to make me feel like I'm good at that mechanic. <laughs> but the emphasis is really on deck building, which is where I live. Yeah, I I liked it. I can't say that I'm in love with it. I thought it was a good game. I did enjoy the deck building aspects of it and the player, the territory control. Mm -hmm. It almost actually reminds me a little bit of trains in that way. I could see that. I think that I don't have a great feel for it yet just because of the way that we played it with all four of us going for the peaceful strategies. Right. Yeah. And that's actually one thing that I think is worth mentioning before we before we move on is this game has a really effectively implemented sort of morality yeah. system. You you basically have a track. One end is mercy. One end is cruelty. Yeah. And depending on which one you're going, the, the game almost forces you to choose. And it really rewards you if you're at the extreme on either track. You know, you your mm-hmm. cards will say, you know, this card gets way better if you're at 12 mercy, which is the highest. Or this card gets way better if you're at 12 cruelty. And that's kind of what you're building up for the whole time. Mm-hmm. And the the two strategies play off each other really well. I think they balance against one another. But we did have a little bit of a weird game because every single one of us went merciful. Yeah, and I think that this is where I think if you have that, then it just it gets to be like you know a lot of times the the person who knows the cards a little bit better is going to win. Yeah. Uh, versus if you have a bit of a split, like there's going to be some interesting like back and forth. The other thing is that I I think something that we didn't really take advantage of because one person got four out of the five actual like title card things. True. Like we we had a little bit of an interesting game with that because we were learning. Like yeah. we, this was no, this no, was absolutely. our first game. So I'd be very interested to see a more balanced game. Yeah. I would agree, and hopefully we'll have that. Yeah, for sure. Um, We've definitely been playing some other stuff. I had a chance to play Spirit Island at home. I know you actually went home, this was a a while back now, but you went home for Easter weekend Yep. and had a chance to play some games with friends and family there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I actually brought home Fantasy Realms and got to play Fantasy Realms with uh, some friends and family, which was a lot of fun. Always excellent. And actually, I, I went to another event that was in the area that was pretty much a pop-up tea shop that had a board game Saturday. For someone who likes tea, as I know you do, that sounds fantastic. It was pretty great. I had one of my friends uh, that wanted to go, and so I went with her and two two of her friends. And we we played some Dragon and Flagon, which I taught them, Mm -hmm. which was a lot of fun. They liked it because they also are D&D nerds. So like, when I told them, hey, look, it's Barroom Brawl, the board game. They were very excited to start throwing chairs and uh, other things at other people. Awesome. And then we also played Tokaido. Okay. It's a game that I haven't played very often at all, but I like it. It's it's The style of it is really cool. It's got like that very minimalistic Japanese style. Mm-hmm. And it's just a calm kind of game but the calm kind of game where you're still saying god damn it you took my move i really don't like what i have (laughs) left to choose from kind of thing so it was fun there was like no direct player interaction but a lot of indirect player blocking (laughs) all right yeah i mean that that does tend to be my preferred form of player interaction so yeah i'm excited to to play it sometime i've heard you talk about it before and it sounds really fun yeah yeah and there you have it that's a look at what we've been playing. 
Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our continuing coverage of the annual Dragon Keep Beer Festival held every year in Brumantia. We have some really great contenders this year. Let's take a look at what the elves are offering this year. Oh, yes, that's looking very nice. Well, this year we are offering our furious, dangerous, double owlbear saison. Wow, that is, uh, yeah, there's certainly a lot going on there. I think, look at that head. Oh, that is just gorgeous. We'll, uh, we'll definitely have to return to that. But first, uh, the dwarves, what have they got? Well, uh, this year we're submitting for the judge's perusal our fungal monkey dunkle. Fungal monkey dunkle. Trust dwarves to come up with some nice, uh, nice rhymes there. Uh, either way, I think we've got some real competition for best in show. Oh, and here comes our judge now, Dave the Grave Popple. He's always looking for a, a beer that's got some great bitterness, but not a lot of color. Let's see who he picks. And there we go. He's picked the Saison. Oh, the elves must be very happy with that. Dwarves, you can try again next year. This has been the Dragon Brew. There we go. And that's how this game works. You are different races competing instead of in war in brewing. Yeah, which, I mean, if all of our real-world problems were solved that way, I think the world would be a much better place. But nobody asked me about that, so... And there would be a lot of really, really good beers. <laughs> which wouldn't really be that much of a deal for you, but... Nope, nothing for me, but... More for us. Well, I don't know. They might go for some root beers or ginger beers or something like that. True, you know, they true. might have They might have a international competition for, like, the underage brewers that Ooh. get to do all these other kinds of things. There you go. Root beer floats and stuff. All right, we're getting far afield. <laughs> uh, the moral of the story, Dragon Brew, as Jacob says is a game in which you take on the role of a different fantasy race and you're trying to brew the best beers. So it is a European-ish game. Uh, you've got lots of worker placement, action management, and a lot of ingredient collection and sort of engine building. Yeah. But there are some different elements as well. It's, you know, the execution, I think, is one of the things that really sets it apart. So let's run through what a turn looks like. So the turn is divided into three seasons. You have the spring, the fall, and the winter. In the spring phase, which I assume it also includes summer. One has to imagine. During that phase, what you're doing is you're getting all your ingredients together. You're deciding what beers you're going to brew and just pretty much doing all of your actions at that point. Mm -hmm. This is the phase that you're using your fields to gather grain. You are going to the magical trader and buying different magical ingredients. You are going to your brewer's study and looking up different recipes of what other spices, what other barrels you want to use. You're going to the, the masher to get some wort out of your grains. And you're sending more workers to your brewery to make sure that you can make more than you, your opponents. That's right. So you've got all of these different types of ingredients, you know, grains and warts and all these things, and each of them has a slightly different role to play. So the grains are, you know, really the basic building blocks. You've got your rye, wheats, things that are going to form the backbone of any beer, and those are really easy to acquire. You just pluck them from your grain field. You get, you know, anywhere between four and eight at a time. They're, they're really easy to come by. Wart uh, is sort of an intermediate ingredient. It's made primarily by combining two different grains of different colors. So the, the grains are in primary colors, the wort is in secondary colors, and you sort of mash them together to create the wort. And then finally, as Jacob mentioned, magic ingredients. You've got dragon scales, pixie wings, and toadstools, each of which are going to be really, really rare, but also proportionally powerful, that are going to make your beers really stand out 
And the way that they do that is with the recipe cards. Yeah, so the recipe cards, first you have to choose what kind of beer you're making. So this could be a Dunkel, a Saison, a Stout, an Ale. You go ahead and choose that, and that is your barrel card. Mm -hmm. So this is the barrel in which you're brewing it. And all of these only have one grain that is their base. Yep. Then what you do is you have to add at least one spice. And now this is what's going to give your brew flavor. So these, you can have as many as you want in each barrel. And each one of those pretty much adds something to the beer. It could be that it makes it more colorful, more bitter, stronger. But it could also make it worth more money on the market, or even it is an ingredient that that's really hard to get, so it's more prestigious, so you get more renown or victory points in this case for that ingredient. So the cards themselves each have like the required ingredients. It can be any combination of magic ingredients, regular ingredients, and warts. There are up to two ingredients on each spice card. And what you need to do is you need to make sure to have the ones that you, you want for that beer ready by the end of the spring phase. Exactly. Exactly. The last type of thing that you can interact with in the spring phase is called the drafting pool. This is where you have a set of cards that aren't acquired through the normal brewery actions. So they, they don't take up a meeple. They don't end your turn, but you can only acquire one per turn. And these are event cards, which give you very powerful but frequently expensive one-time benefits. So gain a point in exchange for a meeple or gain a magical ingredient in exchange for three gold, which is a pretty hefty sum. But they can really be game-changing. Or the other type of card in the drafting pool are brewery cards, which represent more of your engine building. So this is where you can get things like upgrades to make your grain fields more productive or make your brewer's study able to hold more recipe cards or entirely new types of actions like a magical cave that allows you to acquire toadstools on a recurring basis. All of these sorts of things are permanent upgrades. You can keep them from season to season and you'll be able to use them as long as you're willing to spend the meeples. Yeah, so we know what we can do. Now, how do we do it? Greg has mentioned the meeples a few times, and they are the basis of your spring phase. Most races start with either six or seven meeples, and you have that many actions, or at least brewery actions, that you can use during that phase. So each of your standard actions, whether it's the field, the brewer's study, the masher, anything like that, all of them require you to place one meeple on that card. Mm-hmm. And once both players have run out of meeples, the spring phase is over. Exactly. Now we continue on to the fall. The fall is when you actually brew your beer. So everything is in flux until then. You can always change your recipes around however you want them. Also, good to note, all of this is happening behind a screen, so no one can look at your cards and say like, oh, I see you're going for the judge that has high color preference. I'm not going to go for that, or I'm going to try to beat you out on it. Right. So no one knows what anyone else is going for, so what you're trying to do is you're trying to guess, or like you're trying to get the best in all categories, which is almost impossible. Yeah, it kind of is. So when you get to fall phase, it's now time to finalize exactly how you want all of your ingredients and all of your recipes distributed. 
At this point, normally you can only have three beers. If you had sent any of your meeples or any of your workers to the brewery, then you can have one more beer brewed per meeple that you sent there. Right. When you reveal, everyone reveals at the same time. They pick up their screens. Boom, everything's there. You have all your ingredients there. You're showing that you can pay for it. All that kind of stuff. Awesome. Now the judges are going to take a look. First, of course, you have to introduce them. Right. Which is where a lot of fun role-playing comes in. Exactly. Everything that we did at the top of the segment, all of that, you know, goofy voice acting and all those sorts of things, that's in the rulebook. It it highly recommends, encourages, you might say, players to do that, to present their beers, because you have these, you know, ridiculous fungal monkey dunkles, you know, and why are you going to miss the opportunity to be completely ridiculous about it? So that is sort of a formalized part of the game, and it's really fun and really interesting. And once you have presented all your beers, it's time to actually see what the judges think. So we mentioned before characteristics. You've got color, strength, and bitterness. And every beer will have certain values in those three characteristics, even if that value is zero. Judges have two characteristics that they care about, a primary and a secondary characteristic. They can be any combination as long as they're different. And they care about relative value so one judge for example might want very low color in the primary and very high bitterness in the secondary so when that judge comes up and the judges are scored from left to right each player is going to look at their beer that has the lowest color value and once that's been determined if there's a tie you move to the secondary characteristic and see who has the highest bitterness but if there's not then whoever's beer it was just takes a ribbon and puts it right over that beer to denote yay you win they get points for the judge but winning isn't always the best thing when a beer wins a judge's praise it cannot win the praise of any other judge that's right so that means that you know let's say the first judge had the lowest number of victory points that means that even if you had a beer that would have won the second judge who had a lot more victory points it is no longer in contention. Mm-hmm. So there is a really interesting mechanic there that you have to be careful about not overextending your beer because you might win the one you don't want to win. Exactly. And the number of judges is equal to the number of players plus one. So there's always going to be you know a fair number of judges to compete for. And you can try to go for all of them, you know, try to, yeah. try to do well in all of them. Or... You can just try to do well in one of them and instead focus on brewing a lot of beers because in addition to the judges, every beer that you brew is going to give you money and victory points during the profit phase. So every beer that you brew, no matter whether it won an award, whether it was even in contention, every beer is going to get you some value based on the cards that you've used. At the very least, every barrel card, which is necessary for every single beer, grants one point. So you're always going to earn one point per beer brewed, mm-hmm. and you will probably earn some amount of money and additional points based on your spice cards. You can really mix and match, uh, and this is something we'll cover more once we finish the mechanics, but there's a lot of strategy to be had in deciding whether you're going to compete for the judges or whether you're just going to flood the field and try to make a bunch of money and points by crafting beer. Exactly. Once you've done all this, the fall phase is over. And it's now time to rest and pretty much recoup over the winter. Yep. Now, in the winter, this is just pretty much the cleanup phase. What happens here is that you have a certain number of 
recipe cards, and you may have gotten extra ones. So using the brewer study, if you use that action, you got extra ones that were on the field. Now you have to discard to how many you can hold. That's usually a base of 10. Some other races give you more or less, and upgrades can give you more. Mm -hmm. You have to discard down to those. And then you also don't really have that large of a storeroom. So if you have like 20 ingredients unused behind your screen, you will not be able to keep them. Bye-bye. So you can only keep however many you can keep in your storeroom, which is a base of four, can be upgraded by other cards. Once you're done with that, the last thing that you do in winter phase, and this is important that it is last, is that you refresh all of the cards. Exactly. So what you do is you get rid of any of the events that are left out, any of the brewery upgrades, any of the spice recipes, and any of the barrels, as well as the three judges that were there in this year. Yeah, this is super important because the judges, as you know, we, we referenced, care about certain characteristics, but you have to make determinations about which recipe cards to keep and which ingredients to keep. Most ingredients correspond to one particular characteristic before you know what new judges are going to come out and before you know what's going to be relatively high value in terms of those characteristics. Exactly. So once you've done that whole refresh step and put out new recipes, new events, new buildings, and new judges, you go ahead and go to the second of three years that make up Dragon Brew. Right. Each year is basically identical. You should have some points to start with. You'll probably have more money than you started with. And you'll have a, a more carefully curated list of recipe cards. But other than that, gameplay remains exactly the same. You play through three years, scoring at the end of each one. And whoever wins, well, they win the lucrative title of Brewmaster, which yeah. I just made up. And if you do tie the number of ribbons, so the number of judges that you have pleased pretty much with your beer, that is the tie first tiebreaker. And is there a second one? Gold. And the second tiebreaker is how much gold you have left. Right. So this is actually a really perfect segue into strategy because, as I mentioned, you have two general strategies. Compete for as many judges as possible, or just try to get as many beers on the field as possible. And any permutations therein. Right, yeah. You can definitely mix and match. You can you know compete for one, maybe two judges each year. But those are sort of the, the poles, the extremes. And it's interesting to note that winning a judge, apart from the points that it gives you, having the ribbon, having won a thing, is not actually a requisite for your primary victory condition, which yeah. is points. It is a tiebreaker. It's the first tiebreaker. But it it's not necessarily the end-all, be-all. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting about the game is that some people, I'm sure— have a tendency to get caught up in those things because they're you know they're flashy that's that's the the primary mechanic there's basically an entire season devoted to the judges um, me and my furious dangerous double owl bears say so he does he put that together for the intro and i was like this is just a thing that you made like this is for real a beer that you would have but you know sometimes it works other times it doesn't mm. and i think that just really highlights the variability i think that's absolutely a strength of this game is the the fact that you can't use a single strategy every time you kind of have to adapt based on what hits the field and what race you're playing yeah exactly every time you play the game and especially if you're playing different races and there are quite a few races for that matter it's true so like you can 
have a lot of different combinations. Some of them are better against others and things like that. So there's a lot of stuff that you can play that will change just what you're planning on doing. It could also be that, you know, an upgrade that you were really hoping would come out just hasn't shown up yet. And you have to change your strategy based on that. Either that or you look down and you see, oh, wait, I got a, a recipe card that has mana weed. And look, there's the mountain that gives you mana weed. Mm-hmm. I'm going to buy that. And now I have like a little slightly different strategy than, than what I was doing before. I'm going to focus on doing this instead of something else. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Being that you have all of these sorts of things that come out, all of these different upgrades, all the different variable player powers, one of the things that this game does exceptionally well is balance. Yes. Um, And that's one thing that Daniel George, the creator of the game, actually highlights in the rulebook. He says, hey, I know there's a lot of different races in this game, and we spent a lot of time balancing them against one another, playtesting this exhaustively and trying to make sure that each of these powers is roughly on par and I think our experience plays that out. Um, yeah. We we actually had one situation where, you know, we looked at a race in the rulebook, orcs, yeah. who have the ability to gain a bunch of grain and a bunch of gold just for free. Well, okay, not for, for free. It costs for a meeple. Action, yeah. But, you know, but otherwise way more effective than a field. And we were like, how is this not overpowered? Well, the answer is because there aren't any upgrades for the borrower. There are yes. upgrades for the field. Yep. So you don't scale quite as hard. And I think... They did such an amazing job surprising you almost yeah. with with how much thought they put into this and saying like, well, just wait, you know, just just get to the next turn yeah. and you'll see that the balance is in the longevity. And one of the big things I think that you may not realize, especially when you're just looking at the races and just like, oh, my God, this action is so powerful. The limit on the actions because of the meeples, that is the basis of this game it is very strict like this is where all the balance a lot of times comes in because immediately if you just have a field if you if you have a field and you don't have any other way of getting grain what you're going to do is you're just going to go and start upgrading that field as much as possible and those are the most common upgrades in the brewery deck so that's going to come up pretty often. You're going to upgrade that to a point where, you know, you could be getting 10 or even like 12 different grains each time you use that action. Mm-hmm. Whereas something like the Orcs Borrower, they start with a field of two and they start with a borrowing limit of six plus two coins. So when I played them, it was just like, yeah, of course I'm going to use the that and not worry about my field. But when Greg started to produce 10 of whatever he wanted, that really shows that like, you know, there is an action economy there because I had to spend more meeples and more of my very limited actions in order to get to the same point with grain that Greg did. Right. And I think this highlights another aspect of the game balance, which is interesting and something that I feel like you don't see a lot in games with a similar design is that there's no clear moment where you're switching from, okay, this is the period of time when I focus on development and increasing my capacity to this is the time when I focus on reaping these rewards and taking one-time bonuses. You know, it's not turn one, exclusively purchase upgrades, year three, exclusively purchase events. Events are really, really powerful, and very importantly, they don't take a meeple. Yes. The direct cost uh, of, of acquiring a magical ingredient in you know, a toadstool or a dragon scale or something 
from the event deck might be more than acquiring it from your magical trader in your action row, but the opportunity cost of being able to do something else with that meeple can be astronomical. Yeah, for sure. That's where a lot of other like balance in general comes in. But it's really interesting to figure that out. We had a situation where at the beginning of the game, we were just you know learning it and we looked at a card and we're just like, oh, there's a magical trader. Like, you know, it costs three gold to get uh, to get a toadstool where I can get two for like, you know, going to the match uh, to the to my magical trader. Yeah, I think I used the words strictly worse. Yes, I think we both did for that matter. Yeah. And then about like three or four turns into the game that we were playing, it just dawned on us. And it, it clicked. Was, it was yeah. just like, it costs more, but it doesn't use an action. Yeah. That is why it is powerful. Yeah. <laughs> and the game is just full of those. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's one of those that like the more you play it, the more you realize that there are so many of these kinds of balance mechanics between like if my race for example started with more actions than greg's race you can always supplement that by using migrant gnomes Mm -hmm. which in general are a very fun inside joke because they are pretty much just like you know used and tossed away by all these other races they're just like going around and it's true i'm just poor gnomes man yeah they they, most of them they, they don't even give gnome housing to to these gnomes they just send them over to the fields to work or you know the mines to get some toadstools or whatever and pretty much what they are is an extra worker for that one turn mm-hmm. um and yeah it's really powerful and it's one of the more expensive cards that you can get in the event deck. Right. Because it is worth so much. Yeah. Um, and it's it's something, especially, too, that is going to scale even more effectively into the late game as you've acquired upgrades across the yeah. turns. You know, the the ability of a single migrant gnome to gather four grain from an unupgraded field versus ten grain from a fully upgraded field is is quite a bit. So Yeah, exactly. Um all that said, all of these, you know, these things, these very precisely calibrated balance issues, uh, the effective management of action economy, uh, there are a few things that I think we wanted to highlight uh, as far as no game being perfect. And for me, one of those is that I think there are too many races. I think that they did an amazing job balancing the races, and I think they put a lot of, of work and a lot of love into including those races. But I do kind of get the sense that I would prefer the game if it just had slightly fewer. See, I disagree. I think that the number of races that they have in the game is great. I love the variability. I'm always a fan of having more choice in terms of what races I can get. Sure. I think they could have got a different way of maybe choosing races, like get a hand of two races and you get to choose between one or the other. Right. Just so that you're not overwhelmed because there are a lot. But that being said... I really love the fact that I can, you know, play a centaur this game, an orc the next game, a human the game after that, and then a halfling and then an elf. And like every time the combination is slightly different, so you're never playing the same game twice. True. That's a good point. I think my first kind of no game is perfect kind of thing is a little bit of a nitpick. But I think it's important. And... This is in just the design of the recipe cards. So the recipe cards, for those of you who haven't seen the game, you have on top a row that has a smaller version of what aspects this recipe card adds to a beer. 
So, you know, it has the yellow zero or like, you know, whatever it is, the yellow number, the red number and the brown number. Under that, it has the barrel, which shows what ingredients you want for them. Under that, the name. And then there's a big section that has really nice and bold the just what what this recipe gives to the beer. Under that is where they show how many victory points and how many coins this card adds to the worth of this beer. And just in the way that the game is played, because you're playing behind a player screen, it is imperative that you pretty much condense everything down. So since they have and they show what the beer does, at least in terms of the aspects of the beer on top, you're usually covering up the bottom of the beer. Mm -hmm. So you don't see how much money and how many victory points you're getting. Usually, like you would think that it would be a small issue. But when the amounts of money and the amounts of victory points that, that are on these cards vary quite wildly, mm-hmm. even for cards that have the same like number values or cards that have the same ingredient costs, it can be really frustrating to actually have to like dig through and see which ones you have. Or if you don't, you get to the end of the fall phase and you're like, okay, time to get paid. Wait, I made four gold this round? Yeah, and I think this is one thing where this is about the only thing I can think of as far as this game is concerned where the balance does fall down a little bit. You have, as we mentioned, two broad strategies, compete for judges or compete for points on cards. And in terms of the balance between the two of those, I think it's fairly good. You end up with roughly even scores either way. But it does seem to work out in our experience that... If you're going for points on cards as opposed to points on judges, you are going to end up with a pretty significant gold lead. Yeah. You know, we're talking double Mm -hmm. the amount of gold that your opponent is getting, which because gold is used to purchase everything from upgrades to events to ingredients, it, especially over the course of the game, and there is a little bit of path dependency, really adds up in a way that I think could have easily been mitigated by, you know, changing the relative value of of money as it appears on these recipe cards. Yeah, exactly. That all being said, what are ratings? Buy it. <laughs> but no, for real. Yeah. I think this game is fantastic. I think it is a lot of fun. It's got such a great, fun theme, yeah. which isn't something that we mentioned explicitly, but it sort of pervades the whole thing. You know, the art's really fun and comical. The theme of just crafting these beers is i think actually very accurately captured you know you've Mm -hmm. got all of these different types of spices and the complexity of of brewing beer having friends who who homebrew i know a little bit of that i i feel like this game does a great job of capturing it and capturing it in such a way that the gameplay is still compelling and balanced enough that people are willing to play a second game after you finish one like two games in a row is not unheard of and i think all of it just sort of comes together and means that I can't give this game anything but a buy it. I will echo that. I honestly, we didn't play this game for a long time. It's true. We played it on Tabletopia a few times and then came back and finally cracked it open not too long ago. And as I was going through it, I even told Greg, I, like, I forgot how good this game was. Mm-hmm. Like this is a game that like when we were playing, I was like, yeah, I want to play again. Like this is fun. I love the 
theme. I love the different names for all the beers that I can make these really ridiculous kind of beers. And like, even if you're not looking at it while you're actually brewing at the end, you're, just, you're like almost as surprised as the other people. Like when you reveal them, you're just like, I made a what? Yeah. I think it's better if you don't look at them. <laughs> and the balance of this game is impressive. It, it really is. It's amazing how it all works together and how it all just fits very well. And so I 100% give this game a buy it. I really enjoy this game. It is one that I am going to be bringing to table much more often now that I remember how good it was and how much I like playing it. We, there you go. That is a resounding endorsement from us. As always, before we head out, we are going to give a couple of recommendations for similar games, or at the very least games that we think are similar. The first one is probably not a surprise to anyone, Brew Crafters. And I know there's the low-hanging fruit of the theme and making beer and all of that. And yes, that's very true. If you like games about beer, definitely check out Brew Crafters. But also, I think it goes deeper than that. In terms of the way that you're upgrading your facilities while also simultaneously looking for ways to capitalize on strategies that others aren't using. You know, if somebody is pretty clearly by the ingredients that they're taking going for this particular strategy, you can fill in the void in some other some other aspect of the game. And that's something that applies to both Dragon Brew and Brew Crafters. A lot of similar mechanics in terms of action economy, in terms of, you know, sort of the the year-by-year gameplay repetition. And overall, I think the two games have a lot in common, in addition to both being very, very good. So if you like Dragon Brew, check out Brew Crafters and vice versa. Another game that we think is pretty similar to Dragon Brew is a game called New Bedford. This is a very different theme. I mean, you're going from brewing to whaling. I mean, whalers probably drank a lot, though. They did. They probably... There is a building called the Brew House in there somewhere. There you go. So... We found it. Tenuous connection. Fun. But there's more connection on the actual game elements. So in New Bedford, you're also upgrading like your town area to get more actions and to be able to do more different kinds of things and upgrade how you get like, money and other things like that. It's another game where money is actually notoriously difficult to get, as well as has a very specific balance in terms of how you can use it. There's another aspect in New Bedford that you have to send your ships out in order to whale. And depending on how far out you are, you will get like a better picking of the whales that come out. And this almost like sort of mirrors like the judges and that kind of stuff in terms of like the order really matters, like where you are and it gives you certain benefits, but may not even be the best thing to be like just out all the time. So if you like this kind of worker placement game, I would highly, highly recommend checking out New Bedford. And there you go. That is our review, finally, of Dragon Brew. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope that you enjoyed it. Washington tickets are now on sale. Be sure to go to Washington.com to purchase those. Washington is on September 8th and 9th this year. And it will be in the same place that it has been for the last few years, in the Georgetown Hotel and Convention Center. And it's going to be a blast. We're going to be there. There are going to be a lot of really cool people, a lot of really cool designers. And we really, really hope to see you there. Also, check out our YouTube and Twitch channels. We have videos coming out on YouTube. Actually, one that will be coming out hopefully within the next month that has to do with this review. 
sneak preview right there. And on Twitch, we live stream twice a week, normally on Wednesdays as well as either Friday or Saturday, so be sure to check us out there. And finally, don't forget to join us next week when we talk about a comparison of different GMing styles.